0: Hello, everybody. Venerable Rubina. am
1: here. Close. All right.
2: Thank you so much, Venerable Rubina, for coming. OK. I'm we'll
1: happy to be here. Again
2: um and we'd like to offer mandala please
1: right so just letting people know what we're doing it's called mandala actually you know when you look at those round pictures and he says oh that's a mandala you know well what it is actually that that's from tantra and that's uh like an architectural drawing of the abode of the of the buddhas at the more subtle level these these buddhas who manifest in subtle light bodies, they've all got their own abodes. We all live it, we all live in an environment. Well that's their environment. But here we're talking the sutra teachings, and this is the mandala, this is the universe, our mandala, our universe. And what it is, I mean, when you read the contents of it, it sounds a very surprising universe. It's not something we are familiar with. For example, we didn't know, did we? We didn't learn in geography that our sky is blue because it reflects off lapis lazuli. Well, that's what this map, this model says. But if we don't know all the contents of that model of the universe, which is Mount Meru in the middle and the sun and the moon and the goddesses and the sacred cows and Lord knows what. If You don't know that one, don't worry. Just think of all the marvelous things That we know about in our world that are our our karmic appearance and we pile them all up as big as we can be very creative and think of offering it all to the buddha as a request for the teachings it has great meaning you know that's to think as we say these words (laughs) person leads us
2: pramri rahabling jin yee dee general pah song sangye Sangye-he-jing-do-mik-te-uhu-wa nam la pa Jetsun lamadam pa kienam Ki chukui ka la Dense chukut zintrik Jita sampedu jesin ma All
1: right, good. Thank you so much, Jason. So now we can set our motivation, as the lamas would say. We can state our purpose. This next prayer. The first two lines is reminding us of our reliance on the Buddha and his teachings. And then the second two lines stating this marvelous aspect altruistic aspiration that we're going to listen to these teachings the short term is of course to learn about impermanence and death so we can help ourselves die well to get another human rebirth so we can help others die well but the bigger picture is so we can get enlightened so we can help all sentient beings thinking that's why we're sitting here together Dagi chanyan ghipa sonam ki, Drola Pinche Sangi Dripa Shok. Sangi chatan Soke Chognamla, Chandru badu dagni kyapsuchi. Dagi chanyan ghipa sonam ki. Drola pinche sangi drupa shok. So we' saying until we are enlightened we will rely upon the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. And by, the, and by the virtuous karma we create by listening to these teachings, may we all, each of us, become a Buddha so we can benefit all the suffering sentient beings. Okay, good, thank you. So, okay, yesterday we went through the first stages of Lama Zopa's book. We talked about the two approaches to being ready for death. One is to live the life in the framework of impermanence, Buddha's simple teachings, the evident fact that everything changes and how we, and looking at how we live in denial of that because our enormous attachment particularly to ourself and our body. We talked about that, how to prepare to live your life. And that is enough. If you lived your life really well, if you basically it's like it's exactly the same as anything. It's not mysterious. You know, you've got a driving test in a month. If you just sit there thinking, oh, what will it be like on the driving test? And what will the driver look like? And how will it be? And how do I stop myself from being nervous? And what red lights will he go through? And where's the left gear? Where's the right one? You'll never be prepared for driving tests. How do you prepare for the driving test? It's so evident. It's a joke. You start driving, for goodness sake. If you drive every day, whoever the driving test driver is, whatever red light he takes you through, you'll be ready for it. It's so simple. That's the main teaching. That's it. Absolutely, the main teaching. Because if you live in virtue, live in goodness, live understanding permanence, know you could die at any moment. And then, if you and given that you could die at any moment, because you realize the third point that our gets to point out to us, that the only things at the at the time of death, given the Buddha's view that your mind is the continuity of mental moments, goes back and back and back. Given that your mind will go forward, forward, forward. Given that uh, that you that everything you think and do and say produces your future, you're in charge, babe. Given that everything you do that's virtuous, which is an action with body and speech based on a virtue, or an action based on body and speech that refrains from harming, those will sow delicious, wonderful seeds in your bank vault, so that when, you, when death does come, when you don't know when it'll be, whether it's like, you know, the point yesterday, whether you're in, the, you know, in a car crash, or whether you just suddenly, you know, or whether you're dying slowly, you will be ready for it. It's so logical. Because why we suffer at death, as Rimesh points out, why so much fear for most people is because you live in denial of that driving test. You don't want to know about the driving test. You can't stand the thought of it. So you just live in denial of it, worrying about it behind, you know. you are got to be a complete mess when you finally go for your driving test. It's just so logical. So, of course, this is the Buddhist view. I mean, if you're not clear about the Buddhist view, you can't force it down your throat. You've got to think about it if you want to. You know, you can decide. You're the boss of your life. You can decide to have the materialist view, which means you'll fall into a black hole or you just die. That's up to you. Or you can have a Christian view, Muslim view, Australian Aboriginal have view, whatever you want. It's your choice. We're talking Buddha here. So then, of course, the point is if you want to help people die, that's when you need to understand to navigate the, the, this process itself. That's the skill we need. That's how we can help others. So as I said, the first part of the book talks about, you know, goes through the eight stages of death. We discussed all that very briefly. Then the, the, the Sutra, one about the 12 links, what arises at different periods, And, you know, quite technical when the calming seed that does determine the future life is triggered. And that's the period when the mouse or the bird or the dog or your grandma needs you most. We discussed all of this, you know, we went through these different things and I'm welcoming more questions, of course so then we went we, we through the, the eight stages I mean, then we went through the roughly speaking the different things you can do the different you know the, the, all the chapters of what you can do the weeks and months before which has got all these different chapters what can see what can you touch what can there's mantras and different mantras to see different practices to do different w- w- you know prayer wheels to touch blessing strings to touch mantras on the crown mantras on the chest lots of these practical things millions of these bits of suggestions all in there all in, and they are mentioned and then they're all in the back but from numbered one to 87 you know you can choose Then of course, the crucial time is when it gets closer to the time of death. And this is when you're familiar with it yourself, you can start to recognize, you know, when this process starts, we talked about that. And then we talked about the different scenarios when by the time you stop breathing, the next lot of chapters are, you know, that's what we generally refer to when they're dead although we know the mind is still there. So the next chapters, what to do if your loved one dies at home? What to do, if, in other words, from the moment the breath stops, what to do? Well, there are all these different practices that recommends and ideal scenario, as we said, leave for three days, because it could be up to three days before the subtle mind leaves. Or if you die in hospital or in another environment where you know, you might have half an hour if you're lucky, there's just different scenarios there, what to do, keep your wits about you, talk about, discuss it. That doesn't say this in the book, but this is me saying it, you know. You discuss in advance with the hospital. You'd like to keep the body as long. How long can I have, please? If a, if a mummy does die in the middle of the night, don't start doing things. Call me up immediately. Don't touch her. Just let people know the hospitals are very kind and want to help, you know. And then we talked about when the mind does leave the body. We talked about the eight stages gross consciousness, subtle consciousness, very subtle consciousness. It's described in terms of eight stages, but in total, there are 25 different events, you know, through those eight. And then we talked, we read from Lama Zopa's chapter, and this is for those who are practitioners who've received highest yoga tantra initiations, and why death is what the yogis have been waiting for, and how we can all prepare for this. But because the, the, the method for preparing for death is built into these sadhanas, in the, in the meditation on emptiness, it's, it's totally technical and it's brilliant if you've got those practices. This is the, the best way, as Rumache says, to prepare for death you know, because. You, these great yogis especially like Lama Yeshi like other yogis when they, they're able to go because they've practiced their whole life they're able to go through these eight stages with complete control they're able to stay conscious at each ever more subtle ever more subtle ever more subtle level of course that's unheard of for us I mean look how we don't have any control when you go to sleep these eight stages happen every time since you're born as many nights as you've slept you've been through these eight stages and who's aware of it nobody because we've not practiced you know who's been unconscious i mean you, you go to sleep and next minute you wake up 8 hours later no awareness of the process at all but the great yogis can control this process completely and meditate as they go on emptiness to cut all the misconceptions from the mind so they can... and then when they get to death because the mind the, the clear light mind of death is the most is the best quality one the clear light mind of a regular meditation even when we get to the clear light mind is not nearly as potent but the death one is the best That's why they're looking forward to death. That's the time. It's the test. That's their driving test. They're ready for it because that's the most powerful, the most subtle level of mind. The best clear light mind is the time of death. And why they want that is because it's the microscope of their mind, because with that microscope of the mind, they can clear up all the rubbish and literally get enlightened. That's the point. It's a a technical thing. It's not some hippy, trippy, mystical thing. But for ordinary people, like I said, you know, when the time is right, that indestructible drop made up of the subtle red, white Kundalini from the mummy and the daddy at the time of conception, which begins at our heart chakra, then everything, or at the end of the time of death, everything everything goes down to that, from the the feet up and the head down. And the very subtle mind is at the heart chakra in that indestructible drop. And then when it gets to there, we're just unconscious. We can stay there for three days, but we're unconscious. We're not aware of the process. So when the indestructible drop opens, that, that second is when the, indes- when the very subtle consciousness, you know, we're carrying all the calming imprints, everything we've ever done in this life and all the past lives that haven't yet ripened, just then it leaves the body. And from that second, it then reverses the eight stages and it wakes up in this kind of intermediate state, which is just the same as a, as a dream state. That's your subtle consciousness. And the quality of your Subtle, the quality of your intermediate state, the bardo, is, is, is pretty much determined by the seed that's triggered that will determine your next life. So if you're going to be born in the hell realms or the animals, it will not be a fun experience. It'll be like the worst nightmare. If you're going to be born as a human or in the gods or in the pure land, it'll be a very blissful, kind of an, a very nice experience. It won't be awful. It'll be weird because all dreams are weird and because we don't know what's going on. That's our subtle mind. And then when the mummy and daddy hop into bed, in our case, being born human, you know, they hopped into bed and that was the condition that then triggered the ending of our our, um, uh, intermediate state. And then next millisecond, you don't have to climb on an aeroplane. Like if you died in Tibet, you know, if I died in Tibet, something like, you know, a few weeks before 4 a.m. on December, that was when I was born, wrong one, Anyway, never mind, whatever it is, right? You don't climb on an airplane and have to wait and put your ticket in and get to, get to mommy and daddy's, you know, fallopian tube. No, that second shows the concept of time and the concept of distance are conceptually created by us humans. That's by the way, a very fascinating point. You know, there's a person who's born in Tibet, who dies in Tibet. And we can deduce many of us must have been in Tibet. That's how come we like Tibetan Buddhism. It's not, it's not surprising. And we died at some point in Tibet. Our mind went into the Bardo. And then we had the karma to be born to somebody in Melbourne. Australia, I know it's interesting. Australia is one of the most, it's got the most, dense. I think, dense population of Tibetan Buddhists. It's, one, it's said to be a really good kind of rebirth. I mean, it depends on who you are. For some people, it's the worst rebirth. But certainly from the Buddhist point of view, you know, you're born with, a, you know, it's a lot of Australians anyway, like Tibetan Buddhism, so we can deduce karma, we didn't have to decide, well, what country will I go to next? If you're clairvoyant, yes, you can prepare your future rebirth. But karma takes care. So somehow we found ourselves, not somehow, it's the law, we understand the law of karma, we understand how it happened. But Australia became a decent place to get reborn. You know, we met the Dharma. Got reasonable conditions. I mean, you know, in America, that they're still fighting to get fifteen dollars to be the um, fifteen dollars to be the, 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 the you know the, the the minimum wage. Still in the in the federal government, it's something like seven or eight dollars. I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Forty-five years ago in New York, I earned that amount when I worked for as a typist. You know, in an agency, maybe five bucks I earned. 45 years ago and i paid hundred dollars a month rent now i'd get if i had to work for a federal agency i'd get seven or eight dollars a month an hour and i'd pay two thousand dollars for the same apartment i mean it's just beyond monstrous americans are so stubborn i tell you i'm allowed to criticize them i've got an american passport as well as australian so shocking They fight against it so strongly 15 dollars, you know so australia's a good rebirth if you get a job you get a decent salary you got free medical no americans can believe you get free medical They look wide-eyed at you. Isn't it, Americans? Any Americans listening to me? There you go. It's true, isn't it, Sharky? I mean, I'm an American, too, so I'm not being prejudiced. I'm just telling some good facts about Australia. But they're just as as racist as Americans. Don't worry about it. Australian whites are just as racist as American whites. Join the universe, you know. And just as sexist as well. Stupid conservative governments and everything. But never mind. Got a few good qualities. Anyway, never mind. Blah blah. So where were I? Yeah. So our mind ran to a mummy in in Australia. We wouldn't have to carry. And this—that's I, I, an important point. If we do take on board this idea of reincarnation is true, we've got to hear it. You don't wait. You don't come on a plane. You know. You don't have to wait in one millisecond. You're dead in Tibet, and you're now reborn that second in conception in in Melbourne. You've got to think about that. It's kind of interesting. So it sort of shows, isn't it? And I'll tell you a story, actually, that indicates this. It really shows that time, I mean, we've got this human world and it's got we've got human karmic appearances, which means we, we experience things a certain way. So we have a sense of time, don't we? If you know you've got to drive for 30 minutes, you know how long, except when you're a kid. Are we nearly there? Are we nearly there? Are we nearly there? It feels like it's like 15 hours, doesn't it? But in general, we have a sense of how long time takes. That's a conceptual story that we have created. So this is fascinating. I remember years ago, I saw online, yeah, like in the 90s, year online is um, a, a movie online by an American doctor who was Christian, who interviewed his patients about these so-called near-death experiences. But what was fascinating, they weren't all just the white light ones. They were terrifying ones, which I think is a really excellent thing because that's, that's the Buddhist you. So it was very fascinating. There are two, two examples, two parts, two people in the story, different people he interviewed. I think I've got these two guys a bit mixed up, but never mind. It's fascinating. So this is the particular one. One, he was a fellow, an American, he was a businessman, Christian, and uh, he, he had to have a heart operation. And so he's sitting in the bed, very worried and anxious about it. And suddenly he finds himself standing next to his wife who's by the bed and he talks to her, but she doesn't kind of, um, she doesn't listen to him. She doesn't hear him and he gets annoyed with her, but then he looks at the bed and he sees a body there. So he kind of vaguely twigs that it's his body, but he couldn't quite connect with it, you know? So basically his subtle mind, and this is the interesting point we talk about out of body, but you don't leave your body. Subtle mind has that capacity. That's what clairvoyance is. When you've really got clairvoyance, it's like you are there. That's the power of the subtle mind. So some people have it by accident. They didn't plan to. He didn't plan to. So then he suddenly heard these voices out in the corridor. Come on, John, come on. He said, oh, good, I'm going for my operation. So he went out to the corridor and he walked along this corridor. Well, there's two parts of the story, but the part I want to tell you here was this walk along the corridor. He said, it took me as long as walking from here to Alaska. Now, even if it was just next door to Alaska, forget about whether it was in Texas. That's his experience. And probably it was no more than an actual minute in our terms. Think about this. It took me lo- as long as walking from here to Alaska, but in reality, human times, a minute. So this is why I really start to think about when they talk about you, you, you spend eons in the hell realms or you spend eons in the pure lands. I'm wondering whether it's just the experience of it, which is, which is the point. Who cares if it's only one second human time? If it feels like an eon, it is an eon. But it's kind of an interesting point. Anyway, the other part of the story is interesting. This shows our karmic appearances, how due to our own tendencies, our own imprints, our own past karma, we have a certain way of experiencing things. So, okay, he's walking on the cold and then suddenly they start being mean to him, ripping his flesh and abusing him. It was an appalling experience. And then they left him, ripped to pieces and devastated. And there was complete darkness. And he said it was the, I forget, something like the, the depth of despair and darkness that he'd never known before. And he didn't know what to do. So he thought, I'd better pray. So he started our father who art in heaven and he couldn't go any further because he hadn't prayed since a little kid. Then he tried the Lord is my shepherd. He couldn't go any further. And then he just shouted out from his heart, Jesus, help me. And then this white light from way over there, tiny, tiny white light, and it came closer, more brilliant, more radiant. It was Jesus, of course, and he calls it Jesus. Now, you listen to me. Can you imagine if a naked green lady turned up? He would have had a heart attack. But he didn't have buddhist karmic appearances he had christian karmic appearances so this light coming and he became completely blissful it completely healed his body he was radiant he was in full of joy and of course he wanted to go with jesus and jesus says no you're going to go back and serve me well i mean he did and you would So that's a very interesting experience. I find that very fascinating. That shows karmic appearances. You know, all the people who have out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences and when they're in their coma and they come back and they tell you all the story and that many people report hearing voices and someone says, do this and do that. And of course, if you're a Christian, you'd call it God. But if you're a Buddhist, you'd call it Buddha, wouldn't you? It's your karmic appearances and it's the concepts you have. It's not just self-existent out there, Jesus, you know we think it's like that. It's how you call it, which is emptiness really. But the other story was interesting also. This fellow, both of them confessed to being mean to their wives. They both confessed that. This fellow was mean to his wife as well, but he was an alcoholic. And he was suddenly finds himself, you know, dying and he's walking. And this is how they often talk about walking on a corridor, you know, along a corridor, not white light at the other end. Believe me, hell was at the other end. This hideous fire and all his all his friends who died in the fire, in hell. In their own form, and this is what's interesting. I said yesterday. Remember, when you have a vision of a ghost in a house, fifteenth century ghost, that's how she did look then. She's dead now, but that's the vision you have of her because that's who she was then. So the same here. Believe me, if you're in the middle of a fire, your body ain't looking like your old you know, your friend with his you know with his beer belly and his clothes on. But that's the karmic appearance he had of his friends, and they're all screaming at him, "Don't come here! Don't come! Go back! Go back!" So he went back too, and he he served Jesus as well. Of course you would. I think they're wonderful stories. So it's showing karma, but also this, but the other point I find fascinating is over the centuries in all the realms of in all the different human cultures, Australian aboriginals, American Indians, Africans, you name it, on every corner of the planet, you've got people who think about the meaning of life. Some people just have sex, drugs and rock and roll. That's it, we know that. But some people, we call them philosophers. We call them religious philosophers. We call them whatever you want, thinkers. We call them whatever you like. They think about the meaning of life. Well, how amazing. I mean, who, do, who, how dare we criticize any of them? Sure, you don't have to agree with any of them. And some are pretty wacko, some are pretty heavy. But there's human beings trying to work out the meaning of life. Well, I think it's amazing, good on them. So basically the world is full of countless different viewpoints about the meaning of life, isn't it? Put it that way, they've all got equal status the scientific ones, the materialist ones, the communist ones, the feminist ones, the Christian ones, the Buddhist ones, they're all different humans coming up with different viewpoints. Well done. So here we're talking Buddhas, okay? Now, what I seem to notice when I listen to different people, like that, that experience right there, this dude saw hell. You read Mr. Dante, that Italian chap. He wrote all about hell. The Muslims talk about hell. The Hindus talk about hell. The Buddhists talk about hell. Well, there's something going on here. Okay, clearly if you're, if you're, if you're using your, you know, your brain and you're looking at a microscope into a brain, you don't see a hell because you're only talking about your gross level of consciousness, which is the materialist view. But as soon as you get to something subtler, these weird things come up. Well, it seems to me that there must be some common ground somewhere that they've observed similar things. I think that's very compelling. You can't just be like the arrogant materialists who say they're all insane and they've all made it up we're the only intelligent ones, which is what materialists think, which is extremely arrogant. So the, the difference is though, of course, their interpretations of how come it's that and what it is. So the Christians would, roughly speaking, say that, you know, God sends you there and it lasts for eternity. Buddhists would say it's your own karmic appearance. That's that demands we understand emptiness a little bit. It exists, these states exist, they're states of mind, you know, and coming along with a certain level of physicality as described in the Vajrayana, the technology of it for, for the Buddhists, anyway so it's kind of interesting don't believe it don't not believe it but it's interesting that lots of people all over the planet come up with these views it's very fascinating so of course the buddha's view is we created it no one sent us there there's no punishment there's no reward as Lama yeshi said hell is in some place where the devil is waiting saying "Ha ha, i'm waiting for Lama yeshi no it's the it's the manifestation of the negative past energy of that suffering sentient being that's what Rama means by our karmic appearance, you know, it's very fascinating. So anyway, we talked about these different things, but I think, again, I want to emphasize from yesterday, and I've touched on it a few times, is the difference in the materialist view about when death is, which, of course, is when the breath stops. And therefore, for us, once the breath has stopped, it doesn't matter what you do, in a sense. But this is a hugely important point for the Buddhist one. That's why you leave the body for three days. And that's why when even when the body is there looking as dead as a doornail, no breath coming, the subtle consciousness can still be there. And like that woman on the operating table can be aware of it. So you treat incredible respect, and that's exactly the same as whether, when a person's in a coma; they can be totally conscious. So you treat their room, the hospital room, with peace, quiet, having mantras playing. It's so important because it's 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 it's, it's acknowledging that there is a subtler level of consciousness there. The other point is that you can you can you can um you can subdue physical pain. You can medicate physical pain amazing how great but you cannot medicate mental suffering and that's why when you, a person's freaking out when they're fast when they're when they're screaming in agony with their physical pain and their mind is too super distressed not just because of the pain because of their fear then you put them you know you drug them out they're going to have nightmarish experiences so you're not helping their mind at all that's why to help a person at that time be steady be calm have them hear mantras you do everything for their mind. Lama Yeshi was a great, a highly evolved yogi, according to Lama Zopa, fully realized, extraordinary being. He got very sick. He had a bad heart. When he was a little boy, he got sick and he had one valve missing or one valve in his heart not work, working. So any Western doctor, allopathic doctor, whoever saw him, allopathic doctor, whatever the word is, said he, they couldn't understand why he was still alive. It wouldn't have been possible to survive with only these three. But he, the power of his own mind, the power of his experiences and his realizations, he kept himself alive. So he died at the age of 49. His heart had grown so strong that it was so big that it was squashing his, uh, his, his you know, the, the cavity in there. He couldn't breathe properly even. So he, he, then they started to see the symptoms. The symptoms were growing for years. This was in 1983. And he was in India. And he was staying in a farmhouse out of Delhi and people were taking care of him. And I remember there's this wonderful letter. I must read it to you, I think. I think I'll read it to you. It's a great movie. It's about death. I wish I'd put it in the in the book now, but I didn't. Let me see if I can find it. It's very moving. Oh.
0: I can't see it.
1: Let's see it Maybe i will find it in our break and i'll read it to you it's very moving anyway lama's a great yogi who's complete control of his mind but the way he talked to his friend he wrote to his beloved friend his dharma brother you know and he said it was really just the drugs he had to be on it was really distressed the mind so I mean, that's a great yogi can be influenced by the drugs and you can't get your mind clear so the most important job is to find the way you know navigate the use of the different drugs to help as much as anything to help the person be conscious this is what's so, so important you know. Whereas in, the, in our culture, perhaps we have a tendency to just want to drug them out of their brain. They're less trouble. And we just think, oh, look at them, aren't they peaceful? No, they're not peaceful. Not necessarily. That's an important point. But the other one is, because, of course, the subtle mind is more powerful. So you can be conscious in your coma. You can be aware as you're dreaming. You can be aware on the operating table during your operation and when you're technically dead as they're cutting out your organs because your subtle mind is there so these things are to consider take into consideration it's very important the mouse as well the monkey as well the guinea pig as well the ant even the ant the fly all of them help them die peacefully put them in a peaceful place let them hear mantras best thing you can do so okay so then um, then once the mind has left the body, and I said those very in each of those scenarios, you check if the mind has left by doing these different things, and then if it has left, now the body's finished. You can do what you like with it now, you know. Mm-hmm. But the mind now we, we we want to continue helping the mind. So now for the next forty nine days, there are lots of things you can do. Traditionally, forty nine days because that's the length, in human terms, of the time in the bardo at the maximum. It can be a lot shorter, but usually not longer. That's people's experience. So this traditionally you do these practices and there's so many things to do and all of them are for the benefit. One of the person who's dead, but also for yourself, you know. Lots and lots of practices you can do, they're all in the book. So one of the things is, for example, the moment the mind has left the body, now you can prepare the body. You don't touch the body till then. Now you can prepare the body for the cremation or the burial. You can decide, you know. So there's different things Ruba talks about in the book. He quotes, for example, one of the practices he has all the way through is you put mantras on the body, just like the Catholics with those scapulars we had, you know, on the body. You put the touch the body, this has a benefit. So, that you can certainly do. And he he mentions Kirti Rinpoche, one of his lamas from Kham, Eastern Tibet. What they had the the tradition to do was, you know, when they rolled out mantras, they have long rolls of paper with mantras written on them. They would literally wrap the body in rolls and rolls of mantras with the mantras touching the body and then cremate the body like that. There's lots of things you can do like that. Things, or, or, you know, you touch, you certainly have mantras on the body. You would, but, uh, but, you know, they don't have a technical, they don't technically have what we call a funeral or, or a memorial, but as you know, so we've got a chapter in there, how you do that. Well, you'd, you'd, you know, make sure you've got the body already, and then when you take the body to whatever the place is, once you're sure the mind has gone, then you can really yeah, bring your friends together but one of the crucial things for the buddhist view of course is you do you certainly talk about their good qualities and rejoice in their life which is marvelous for us that's good for us but what about for them well you say prayers you do the king of prayers for example and you even could give a talk about impermanence even dare to remind everybody in the audience who's got the hubris of thinking that i'm a living person and there's poor old dead grandma that honey child this will be you one day nothing wrong with that it makes it a learning experience it makes it a teaching not just making us feel relieved that we're not the one in the funeral, you know, in in, in the coffin. But you do things for the person's sake. Everything has to be for the person's sake as well as our own. So then you prepare the body, but then if you're gonna have it cremated, you make sure, you know, that you take, No, if you're gonna have the body buried, you make sure you keep back a bit of hair or nails some part of the body, just a little bit, because then there's a particular practice that Rinpoche really praises, they all do in the Tibetan monasteries called Jangwa. The actual practice isn't in the book, but it's referred to. And you would go to a, a, a qualified lama in a monastery who would do it for you. And that's where they bless the remains. And this is said to be so beneficial. Rinpoche is so optimistic. He's got so many practices that you can do. He even got a section where he says, you know, if, if you, you know, like the, the ideal scenario is before you stop breathing, a virtuous calming seed is triggered and you get a decent human rebirth. You're happy. Now, the next scenario would be, you know, that you might, that a negative one has been triggered. But you can change it from there on. You can change it from there. You can change it in the bardo. You can change it even afterwards, even by doing jangwa. And the, the karma's there; they're in the bardo, and they're getting ready to go to the hell realms. But by purifying, by blessing their ashes, by blessing their their um, their remains, you make it a holy object. Even that, Ruma says, can help them reverse the karma. He's got so many things. So optimistic about things you can do. Never too late, you know. So that's one of the really powerful practices he recommends you do after you've had the funeral after the body's gone. You keep some back, some of the, you keep some ashes. You can chuck all the rest of the ashes out if you like, but you keep some, you don't have to keep the lot, but keep some and then you get the ashes or the other remains, the nails and the hair blessed. And Rinpoche just so, 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 so it's so powerful in the way he says it's such an amazing practice. He said, well, you know what we tend to do, we take our ashes, we throw them to the wind or in the water, but there's no benefit. It's just sentimental. There's no benefit. There's no, but nobody benefits. There's no benefit to your loved one. And there's no benefit. It's nice for us. It feels nice, but there's no benefit. There's no merit. But if you bless the ashes, then there's different things you can do. All, all the remains. You can mix it with plaster and you make those little tsatsa images. It's in the book. You know, those little kind of bar relief, little Buddha images. This is so powerful. You can mix it into a stupa. You can mix the ashes into a statue. You can then bless them and then and then scatter them to the wind. And whoever touches them will be blessed by it, all the birds. You just put into the water, all the fishes will be benefited. By blessing them, you make it beneficial. You say, but it's going to the, you know, going to the going to the um the cemetery and offering flowers it's nice but there's no there's no merit involved so these different things it talks about it's very practical very helpful giving somebody things away one of the things they talk about you know three things you do at the end before the person dies you make sure they give away you make sure they give away all their things you make sure they 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 get some blessed one of the things they get some blessed some like a blessed pill, for example, and make sure they swallow it, that can help them. But the one about giving all their things away, of course, we, we handle that by writing legal wills, don't we? And that's really important because there's no benefit to the person dying with attachment to all their things. It's really, if they give their things away, that's practicing generosity and that can only help their future life. That's really helpful. And then when all the other practices you can do during those 49 days, you know, once you've buried or cremated your loved one, and once you've blessed the ashes by doing jangwa, other practices as well you can do, then there's all sorts of things you can do by having special pujas and you can do a retreat on behalf of the person. You can have publish a book using the person's money. You can do virtuous things with their money. All of this is benefiting the karma of the person, including the cat, including the dog, including your baby, including your grandma to benefit the person. So benefit weeks and months before. Benefit hours before. Benefit the time they stop breathing. Benefit the time the mind leaves the body. Benefit after they've even been buried. All the way through these different practices you can do. And I think this is what people find quite helpful. Because even if you're a Christian, there's much practical advice here. And people want to, we all feel we want to do something. Especially for pets. People love doing things for their pets. They really love doing it, you know, because you feel like you're helping. Not just sitting there hopeless. And that's the, the use of this book, it's a handbook, so practical. So ask me some questions now. Um, about anything since yesterday, whatever you like.
3: Uh, we have a couple of questions here, one from Francis and one from Bruna. So I'll just ask Francis's first because it was about blessing the ashes. Um, so Francis is asking, do the ashes have to be blessed within that forty-nine period, 49-day 49 period of Bardo?
1: I mean, of course, best, but never too late, Frances. You know, you can get your ashes of your husband off the mantelpiece now and you can bless them and you can make them into little tatars. This is something so moving, you know. I mean, it's never too late, Frances. It's never too late. And it's something so good for the people. I mean, I know a friend of mine, when her, her son died, I mean it was devastating when you have your son die he was 40 and he had a wife and kids and the wife it was just beyond this young woman devastated and the, and the ashes were sitting on this mantelpiece she didn't she was didn't want to let go of them you know but it's sort of kind of what are you going to do with this? So then she, I said, why don't you tell them? I told the mother who's Buddha. I said, why don't you tell her, let's bless the ashes and make little images of the Buddha and give these to everybody. And everyone was so happy. Instead of seeing just a canister of ashes, you see a little Buddha image and you know your, your loved ones, your beloved, your daddy or your husband's ashes are mixed with it. There's something very nice about that. It's very special to do it. It's in the book, Francis. You'll see and it's a listing, certainly the latest version of the book, there's a list of all the different centres who can do it for you, but you can always contact Kopan Monastery because they can do all these things. It's such a nice thing to do, it really is. Yeah, never too late, darling. Good. What else, people?
3: Okay, so there's know. a question from Bruna as well. So Bruna is asking, uh, recently I've been diagnosed with a terminal heart condition with six months to two years' time. I'm a lapsed Catholic and have recently become interested in Buddhism. Could you please give me a guide to teachings and or rituals that would help me face death with a calm, gentle manner for me and those close to me?
1: Well, Bruna, that's a big, fat question. It's the essence of the question everybody should be asking, darling. But you're asking it because you're, you know, you're, you've now moved from the, what the world thinks. You've moved from the living group to the dying group, haven't you? But actually, we're all in the, in the dying group, Bruna, but you're just intelligent enough to know it. So, I mean, I I could say, simple answer, I don't want to be rude to you. The simple answer is every single word I'm saying here is from this book of Lama's Opus. So I highly recommend you get the latest version. You can get it as a Kindle book or whatever it is it's called. And I just suggest... I would, you know, a way to help you. I'm happy to help you. And I, you need someone to talk to. I think you start looking at the book, just reading it, sweetheart, and just listen, listen to read it very objectively and think about the meaning, all the things I'm describing here are straight from the book. And then I think, you know, you can talk to Jason and Amy, or you can email me and we can discuss it as you go along. I would suggest you do that. Or if you already know somebody you can rely upon to talk to you, that's up to you. But you're very welcome to do all that. But I highly recommend you start with that because the, the question is perfect, but it covers everything, darling. And and all the way through, the crucial thing I would say is it totally is necessary for you, not just to, I'm not saying you are, just to leap in and grab hold of anything. I mean, you've been told you're going to die, baby. We haven't been told. I haven't been told. So I've got the hubris of thinking I'm not going to die yet. Ridiculous. So it's powerful what's happening for you, Bruno. I can imagine that. So sweetheart, read it with a very open mind and keep looking around. If you don't like what you're reading, keep looking, keep checking because you're the boss of this situation. you know. But if, but the point I'm getting at is every single question you ask, the, the, according to the Buddhist perspective, if you have confidence in this process, you will get exactly what you want. But I'd even say it for somebody who's a devoted Catholic. They, if they have with great faith in their Catholic upbringing, they will die a happy, peaceful death as well. So it's up to you to find what works for you, sweetheart. That's the key point now. That's the key point for you, Bruna. And you're more than welcome to email me. You don't have to, you can talk to Amy, talk to Jason, whatever you like, or person you know, but I'm more than happy to kind of navigate it with you. It's up to you, sweetheart. I hope that helps, Bruna. But I'd suggest get this book as a good start. Yes, can I see you here? Let me see you. if I can see you. Are you here or is that on the note? I'm trying to look for Bruna's name. Where's Bruna? I can't see a Bruna here.
3: Bruna, do you just want to say hello? You're just unmuted.
1: Oh, oh there you are, darling. Hello, <laughs> Bruno. I'm happy to see you, sweetheart. Hi. You look thank like you. a good Italian Catholic, not just a Catholic, but an Italian Catholic. Oh, Is that yeah.
0: right? Half of them are lapsed anyway, so <laughs> I'm joining <laughs> the crew. Um, Where do you live, you. darling? Where do you live, Bruna? Um, I live in Astondale. Um, okay, okay, perfect.
1: So have you been Have you been listening to everything all yesterday as well? Oh, yes, yes. So definitely. what do you think of all the stuff that you're hearing? I mean, how are you feeling about it? Be very straightforward. Is it interesting for you? Is it kind of like triggering some ideas for you? What do you think? Uh, it,
0: it's, given it's, me, um, it's given me comfort. Good. Uh, um, and
1: now I'm going to... Uh, Look into it all. It, yes, Keep that's all you can do YouTube. bruna that's all you can do darling with confidence yeah. really look And the broader point, Bruna, is, and this is the whole point, we all need to give ourselves this wake-up call, you know, is to start to think, okay, what is the hell of the purpose of life? Why am I here? These are the questions we have to ask if you haven't asked them before. Suddenly, instead of taking your life for granted, suddenly you realise you can't take your life for granted, you know? And this is what's good for all of us, Bruna, and you're taking this advantage and it's marvellous. So just in your own way, you read the books you can, you talk to the people you feel, but be confident in it. Don't freak out, go one step at a time and no, honey child, you are the one who's got to decide you might want to go back to being a Catholic you might want to become who knows what you might want to do it's up to you to be clear so take it steady one step at a time get good friends don't just rabbit on about it to everybody because people think you're stupid and they'll give you their own dumb ideas so be very cautious who you talk to do you understand yes. Bruno? yes and get a good supportive group of people and meanwhile you're still Bruno and you're still a living person you know so yes. take it one step at a time honey uh, and you know as I say there
0: It's it's for me. I need to do this, but I also feel
1: that I need to do it for my family. Also, you're absolutely right, darling. And you could be a powerful example. You know, when you read sometimes stories about children who die or people who die, everybody around them is deeply touched by it. That's a very special way to feel, Bruno. So you be like that exactly. It's for the sake of everybody. You know. Thank you very much, Ravina. All right, sweet. And if you do want my email, you just. Ask you. I'm not saying you should. You do not have to. But ever you want to, you get it from Jason and Amy, and I'm more than happy to be in touch. Okay. With you, if you want. Thank you. That's very right. kind of you. I'm an old Catholic as well. Where did you go to school, darling? Did the nuns educate you? Uh, no, no. I went to a public
0: uh, to a public school. High school. So, okay. Yes. But, okay. Um, I was. I actually was had my first Holy Communion in in Italy.
1: Oh, you did. Oh, that would have been a yes. big affair.
0: Oh, it was, yes. And <laughs> then came out here and kind of had to do the whole thing all over again because uh, I couldn't speak the language. And oh. oh,
1: God. Yes, of course. Anyway, look, we're, we're here and... Yep. Yes. Um. Well, darling, one step at a time, Bruna, and I think you're great. You're really being brave, darling. We all should take example. Every one of us shouldn't just sit back with our arrogance thinking, oh, no, I'm not dying, you know, not true. Not true. So good on you, Bruna. And of, yeah, thank you for thank asking. Thank you, Rabina. Good, sweetheart. Good. Thank you, darling. What else, people? Talk to me. Any other questions?
3: Um, a a follow up question, Venerable Rabina, um, from Lakshmi. She says uh, My husband's, my friend's husband is actively dying from a brain tumour, but neither he nor his wife have religious inclinations. I'd love to do some practices to help him, but also don't want to disrespect his views. What would
1: you understand. Now, this is a really good point, point. and many people ask this, so let's just really look at it rationally. My feeling is, you know, that if I were, let's say, a Catholic, and I was being respectful to my friend who's not a Catholic, I don't think there's anything wrong with me invoking my catholic god or anything to help this person it's not insulting the person at all they don't even have to know it's not being naughty i mean this person is a materialist and they probably think they turn into dust there's nothing wrong with that it's not being sneaky people often think it's being sneaky you don't go and barge and on top of them and tell them this but you i think there's nothing wrong with you doing your own practice your own prayers i mean i've even also found somebody a friend of mine who's a materialist i said i'm doing some prayers for you they were so happy you know they said thank you very much they, were, they didn't know what they felt themselves, but they were glad to have somebody thinking about them. So I think there's no harm in you doing, if you're a Buddhist, to do the Buddhist practices quietly for this person. It, it's like for a mouse or a dog, you know, they don't mind. So it, and, and it can never harm. It's not possible to harm them. It, and if anything, it can only help. That's my thought. What do you think, Lakshmi? Do you agree with that thinking? Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. But I just thank you.
4: Um, yeah. I just wanted to make sure that I was respecting their views and
0: I had a bit of a dilemma about it, but that's... Well, I know.
1: Everybody's asked the same question. I think so. But are yeah. you seeing the reason why I think it's not intervening for them? They don't even have to know. It's not being... I mean, if you're invoking the devil to harm them, then I suggest that's kind of rude. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying, you know? But if you're I only mean- doing something to help them, nobody can yeah. nobody complain if they ever found out about it. They can only be happy. I mean, it's not trying to manipulate them to getting stuck into Jesus or stuck into Buddha. It's simply according to the person's karma, whatever you can do, whether it's spiritual or, or physical, to help their mind navigate death. How can it not be helpful? Yeah. So and it's for you to be clear, though, in your mind. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Good. Actually. Thanks, darling. It's a very common point. It's a very interesting point, you know. But, I mean, if I were with them, then it's different. I wouldn't start barging in and telling them about Buddhism and trying to be fundamentalist. That, of course not. I'd talk to them and say what a wonderful person they are, what a good life you've led, you know, that kind of thing. Praise them and love them and respect them. that That's what you would do directly to them if you have any direct contact, you know. Yeah.
3: Go on, people. What else? Um, David has a question he'd like to ask. Dave? Oh, talk to me, David.
5: Yeah. Hi, Rabina. Um, forgive me, I'm not exact with the names and dates, but 2016-17, um, Copan yes. had the uh, massive inauguration of the young Rinpoche. Um, yes. And then uh, Lama Zopa or Copan as part of that gave out a gift box and it had um, the Lama that was there for like 40 years, his ashes. In a,
1: lama Lundup, uh, the yes. Abbot of the Monastery, that's right.
5: Thank you, thank you. Uh, apologies for not with the names. No um, and I saw the monks wear it, so I've always worn it apart from in the shower. But um, yeah, could what, you tell so, me, me what's the is, point of wearing it?
1: No, well, let me you see know. it. I want to see it. Show me to me. I'll see if you're on the speaker. Let me have a look at. it. Can it closer to the camera? Oh, oh it's it's an image. It's it's a tsa. It's a little statue, isn't it? It's, a oh, it's the ashes. I know darling but turn oh. it around it's a little statue isn't it it's a little statue isn't it yes right. yes but that's what yes. I'm saying before that's exactly right so the point is this okay now I see it it's fine now I see it so what it is as I said before one of the marvelous things that you can do let's say your ashes or somebody else's and then they've done it with him they had the ashes blessed And then they mix it with clay and they mix it and made these little Buddha images. That's all. That's what they've done. So what, why is it because it's an amazing blessing for you to any Buddha image that you look at and see every day. And you know, it's been blessed. It can only give you a blessing as well. That's the whole idea of it. It's the same as having the Buddhas up on your wall, you know, exactly the same, but you've got it. You don't have, you can wear it because it's, it's, that's often what, it's like the Catholics have these things called scapula. Did you know about that? catholics had a similar thing because it's been blessed with the energy of the buddhas and it's a buddha image it's said to be very blessed that's it so touching your body can be beneficial it's like hearing touching it or hearing the sounds of mantra touching it having it touch your body this is one of the practices they recommend we do
5: okay thanks Rabina.
1: good thank you thanks sweetheart what else people
3: um, a question here from Pia. Uh, Pia asks, question on sleeping yoga. There is yes. still a moment at waking where I'm not immediately waking in the form right. of Yogini. How do I bridge that gap between immediate waking and arising in the form of the deity?
1: You know, Pia, I think the only, the long-term answer is to do, get your single point of concentration, meditate in the sadhana with the Vajrayagini, as you're saying, it's got all the different stages. But the more you are able to get concentration, and then you, you, you know, you transform the three stages. The first, you go through the stages of um, what, what you would go through if you were dying, but that's what you do when you go to sleep. You've got to get concentration, basically, Pia. There's no, I mean, you've got to get in charge of the process, and that means you need single point of concentration. So then you practice in your sadhana, going doing all those 11 stages of the Vajrayagini and sadhana, as you know, and you go through these stages as you get more sophisticated in your concentration you will actually go through the stages of death and then you'll manifest as the dharmakaya at the time you go to sleep and then when you wake up in the dream you'll manifest as the as as the as the deities as the sambhogakaya and then when you wake up into life and you'll manifest as Vadyogini, you've got to to you fake it till you make it first but you've got to practice the entire thing which means getting concentration there's no shortcut okay You've got to be in charge. In other words, of the entire process. This is what the greatest yogis have got. Were you here yesterday? Were you talking to me? Yes. You here, yeah, you. So you heard me say yesterday about death is what the yogis have made. They've completely yeah. in control because they've got their concentration. But if you do your sadhana perfectly, like Namazopa says, and you go through those different stages of transforming each of the different b- bodies, then it'll be programmed in your mind, honey. And when you die, you'll be able to do it. It'll be brilliant, you know. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm still like, in my fake it till you make it stage. Yeah, and that's it, darling. <laughs> and
1: this is, the, I mean, fake it till you make it is called practice. Yeah, no complaints, you know. Just keep doing it every day, sweetheart. Perfect. perfect. You've you got, you got your Saturday night. It's perfect. You've got your method, you know. It's great. Yeah. Thanks, Pia. Thanks, darling. Mm-hmm. What else, people? Anything?
3: There's no more questions in the chat at the moment, but if anyone else wanted to ask, um, you can go ahead and ask a question.
1: Okay. So there's no more Look,
4: I'll just unmute myself for a quick one.
3: Okay. Yes,
4: darling. Uh, hi, darling. Okay. Uh, just this applies to both Australia and to the US. There is a living will possibility. And That's I think it's. Talk about,
1: that. talk about that. Yeah, talk about that, Jane. It's good. You want
4: me to talk about it or do you want to talk
1: like... about it? doesn't talk about it in his book, but in a way he's doing like that because you prepare exactly. But you know, yep. you just talk about how you formalize what your wishes are. It's a really good point. Tell us I about I think that.
4: it is important to formalize because if something happens where you can't articulate it.
1: That's right.
0: Yes.
4: Or somebody around for you can't do it, it. You know, if you've got that available, they That's do right. need to pay attention to it. So. Well, so
1: talk about what the process is. Sorry? Explain it to people. Some people don't know what it means. I didn't know what it meant until someone told me.
4: <clears throat> An advanced care directive or living will is where you specify how you want your end-of-life care to, to be. And you would also put in there uh, issues around your health. I do or do not want to be have comfort care for uh, my issues, which would mean if I t- put down comfort care, that cues them in, you want to be highly medicated. If I say, I don't want it, it gives them uh, some idea about what you're actually wanting. <clears throat> I do want to be resuscitated. I don't want to be resuscitated. You can put those kinds of things in there. Um, you know, I don't, Personally, I don't, I would put in, I don't want people laughing and joking in my room. Yeah.
1: Yep. So, so all can of be quite particular. Good. Go on, go on, Jay. Can, you can be quite
4: specific. You can also Google this. It's available. Advanced Care Directive in Australia is readily available uh, on the internet. A copy of it. Good. Okay.
1: Good. Thank so I suppose the point of this book, this is the point of Lama Zopa's book. It's, you know, the, the, um, the advice that's given obviously is for a person to practice themselves, but clearly the way Lama Zopa's entire book is that we, as a helper, would be the one who would help the person navigate the weeks and the months and the days and the hours and the afterward. So that would all be taken care of by the helper. But of course, there's nothing we absolutely cannot guarantee. We'll have a helper, and we, you know, so it's actually excellent that we do show all this and using all the advice that Rimé gives, we can incorporate that into our living will. I think it's a great idea. Absolutely. And also the point is, too, I know with I mean, some friends of mine who've died and the people who helped them, there's all this, they're all students of Lama Zopa, so they're all on the same page. But each one was quite different because some needed more help, some wanted less help. One of the nuns, she was very independent. She didn't want people reading her prayers to her. The other nun did want the prayers read to her. So these are much more fine details, of, especially for a Buddhist one, you know. So even then, you can be, you have to find out from the person. And as Lama Zopa says, you've got to know the person's mind, you've got to know what's best for that person through all these small details, you know. But yes, it is a really good point. Richard, of course, doesn't talk about this, but it's it's implied, if you like, in the advice he gives. But yes, to make it. But then I'm always puzzled though, let's say, but I mean, how do I, do I have to wear it on my body all the time in case I die in a car accident or a cafe or walking down the street? I'm not being sarcastic here, Jay. How would you handle that? One
4: of the things that we do is particularly, um, I, I would have one with my GP, I would have one with my uh, friends, I would also have one if I end up in a nursing home, I would have one with them. I'd have it spread around as much as possible. And, you know, if you really feel vulnerable, you could carry one on your person.
1: I mean, because I, I mean, they not that big. It, no, it wouldn't. And also, it could just—it could be on a stick, couldn't it? On a U- UBS, U- Absolutely. UBS, UBS? Absolutely. Yep. Because I mean, you don't know how you're going to die. It mightn't be an ideal death. Maybe you just die in a bus or something. So it's good to have something on you. No, that's interesting. Okay, good. All right, this is helpful. Thank you. This is really good. Thanks, Jane. What else, people?
5: I just had something to that that might answer your question, Robina. Yeah, David. Um, uh, On you, you can put on your phone the thing. You just put the initials like a contact ICE in ICE in case of emergency. And they can access that when your mobile phone is unlocked. So let's say I chose Jason and then I would put in my phone, mobile phone, Jason, mobile number. And then he's got the copy of the um, advanced health directive. So that way you don't need to carry it all the time.
1: Because everyone has their phone, don't they? People tend to have their phone. Yeah, they
5: they just go into your phone like they do, uh, like, Getting your medical record, and they ring up Jason and go, "Oh, we found this person. He's been in an accident, or he's sick, or whatever." And then Jason yeah. would know immediately what okay. to start doing. Perfect.
1: You better not put that on in America because ICE is the name of the of the immigrant uh, police, police, the police organization. So you'd be in trouble you Get the sent to the wrong one. I'm just joking. That's really good. Thanks, good. Thanks, David. It's helpful. So, what else, people? Anything more? Got a whole hour for this session still. Any more questions? Because much comes out of questions, is what I've found. Because in a way, we've covered the book. We've done everything. We can certainly do more. But I want to hear some questions. If there aren't any, that's fine. So one one section is called what to meditate on, and there's all these different levels of meditation. Another one is what to what meditation is to do for purification. And all of that too is related to the person and their level of practice and what they need and so on and so forth, you know. But the one meditation to do would be, Shay has got a very simple guided meditation that you can read out to your loved one that takes them through these eight stages. And we can do it oneself as well. It's very helpful. So that's, a very, that's just become familiar with that process, you know. That's, of course, for a person who's, who's committed to the Buddhist view of the world. If you're not sure yet, you wouldn't do it. It's too weird, you know. There's so many present there's so many um, so many uh, good meditations so many kinds of meditations that you could easily guide that would either the, you know because many of them are ones you need to guide for the person and this is something very consoling for some people just to have you reading out these lovely meditations or reading out certain prayers you know so important because when you're dying and when you're sick you might you can't hold your mind very strong isn't it and have a person that you love and trust but that's the other person that's the point as well all of this advice in rimache's book is 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 addressed to the person who's in charge of the process you're you've got to be the boss if, like i said yesterday if you if you're just a sister who 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 has about the fifth fifth option to make decisions you you there's nothing much you can do you know like just now lakshmi mentioned somebody somebody of a friend is dying so you're not the one who makes all the decisions so if you are the one who makes the decisions it's a really powerful job to do you know so you have got to know the person well they've got to really like you i mean they've got to like you if they can't stand you well keep out of their way please don't force it or don't be like this is so funny one husband one man buddhists They were Buddhists and the husband and the wife were Buddhists and the wife was sick and dying. And the husband was so fanatic, he'd wake her up every two hours and make her do her prayers. I mean, the poor woman was exhausted. Leave the woman alone, for God's sake. Do her prayers for her. Give her a break, you know. You've got to be so gentle with people because, I mean, when you're dying, your mind is so fragile, so sensitive. That was awful, I thought. Or do all that horrible thing like have fights but that's the point i was saying before when you have the buddhist view that even if they're unconscious even in a coma it, it's so important to make it so peaceful and quiet for the whole three days when they, the mind the gross mind has ceased the subtle mind is still there it's like a shrine room only prayers should be heard in that place. in that scenario you know they do that in the monasteries you can do that have you bring your friends coming i know miffy in queensland who's the SPC there, the spiritual program coordinator at the the Brisbane Centre. When her mummy died, her mummy ran the centre there. Now, Miffy is the spiritual program coordinator. This is like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I think, 30 years ago. So she had the body, she kept the body for three days. And she wrote about it later. It was very, very inspiring, you know. And different people come all the time saying mantras, saying prayers for inter, for the mother. And for your cat as well, your dog as well. So that's a, that's one that, you know, um, I think, no, no, I think I did have to, I think we have to talk about karma. That's right. We do need to talk about karma more in more detail. I think, because you haven't asked in this particular case, you guys haven't asked, one of the commonest ones to ask is about killing animals, you know, or as we call it, putting them down or, you know, you, what about euthanasia? I can't remember if you have asked, let's talk about this one. And that means we have to understand how karma works. It's pretty basic. It's pretty technical. So in general, like I've been saying, the Buddhist view is the broad Buddhist view is that our own consciousness This, because you again remember Buddha doesn't use the word soul like Bruna and I brought up as Catholics, we know we have a body we have a mind and if we're materialists, we know that's the brain, then we have this other special part of us that God gave us at conception God put the soul there, there's no view like that in Buddhism, you know, and also the other point is now me mentioning earlier, there's two points now I'll, I'll go to this other point first. This, you know, is for Bruna's sake, because she was a Catholic, like I was. So um, as I said, all these different people all over the planet coming up with similar findings. It's so fascinating. So the point is, interestingly, in Buddhism, you hear, oh, Buddha doesn't believe in God, we'll say. So we sort of think he must be a communist or something. No, he's not a materialist at all. Buddha still asserts something. Not I'll go into the other business later. Buddha still asserts something not physical, but he doesn't call it a soul. He calls it consciousness or mind. These words are synonymous. But the point for Buddhism is that the word mind or consciousness refers, first of all, to all the gross thoughts, all the concepts, the thoughts up in the head, the brain aspect, all the Feelings, emotions, unconscious, subconscious, instinct, intuition, even what you think of as like your spirit or your soul, this more subtle level. So it's not that Buddha's not saying there's not something there, He is, but he doesn't use that word soul as a separate thing that comes from God. That's the view that's fundamentally different. He says we've all got a consciousness. And as I'm describing, when we go through the death process, it goes from the gross to the subtle to the very subtle. And the very subtle level of consciousness, we know when any of us die, that very subtle consciousness, that's what the Christians would call the soul, basically. It will carry on you know, but no, it's, that's just subtle consciousness for the Buddhist view. And it happens to be the repository of all the karmic imprints of everything you've ever said and done and thought, you know, it's just a natural process for the Buddhist view, this view of karma. It's not some kind of thing like punishment or reward. And then there's a judgment day and you get punished and sent to hell and you get rewarded and sent to heaven. There's no view like that. Your mind is programmed with your own actions of body, speech and mind. So you produce your own future life. It's a pretty interesting concept. So this doesn't mean, so then where do you think? So then you think, well, you know, if you've come from a Catholic and you say you're not an atheist, then what, what's the function of Buddha? Well, that's the point, it's very interesting. So Buddha also has the term superior being. Now, you know, I interestingly, this is now for Bruna, in Melbourne a few years ago, I went to a convent. I mean, it's not it's in, in, it's not it's in the same it's in the southeast part of Melbourne. It was in Glen Iris. It's one of the the Sacred Heart nuns. I know mean, you didn't go to the nuns, Bruna, but I went to the Sacred Heart nuns, and so did Pia. Pia in Sydney went to the same nuns. We're both old girls. They call themselves old. We called ourselves the old girls, Sacred Sacred Heart old girls. Me and Pia. So anyway, Bruna, I went to you know I went to this Catholic convent. What was I saying now? Oh, that's right. I gave a talk. So a friend of mine, I, I go to the, I still go to the, um, the, the reunions. I'm now very soon going to go to my 70th reunion, not 70th. That can't be right. Six. No, no. 60th, maybe I'm 76. So what does that mean? Maybe the 60th. I left school when I was 16. That's right. 60th. That'll be this year. I think if I'm in Melbourne, maybe next year, I can't remember. Anyway, the point is, the point is I, I they asked me to give this talk at the Melbourne university, which is in Fitzroy. So I had a 20 minute slot to talk about something, this Buddhist nun, right, at this Catholic conference. And I even the morning I arrived, Bruna, I didn't know, and Pia, I didn't know what to talk about. So I looked up the dictionary, literally for the definition of God. And then I thought, that's interesting. So the definition of God, God, this As they say, in Christian, this energy that pervades the universe that knows everything that sees everything has infinite compassion has infinite power and is the creator of the universe. Well, the first part of that definition Buddhism agrees that's called a Buddha. All-knowing, all-compassionate, all-wise pervades the universe. But the difference is the Christians say that energy creates the rest of the world and is the first cause. The Buddha says, no, you don't need a first cause. Your mind goes back and back and you you become a Buddha. Everybody can become a superior being. Everybody can become totally enlightened. That's the major difference, Bruno, between God and Buddha. Can you hear that point, Bruno? hear me it's an interesting point you know and some people even some christians like that idea it's kind of curious they're not shocked by it you know because if you were to say to a devoted catholic you can become god that's too shocking that is a very shocking concept but you can see that similar i mean pia's got some experience even from islam as well and if you look at the more esoteric catholics and christians and the more esoteric muslims and the more esoteric buddhists they all agree i mean i know dalai lama one time he, he's got these Catholic priest friends and he, and I know he he has these wonderful meetings with them and they all have such a way of, of communicating. In fact, I remember one time, one story I've got in 1982, Lama yeshi invited the Dalai Lama to Europe, to our different centers there. And Lama was the most outrageous person and he's very radical. So he invited 10 of us five girls and five boys to be security guards for the Dalai Lama can you imagine and I was one of the girls I felt I'd won the lottery I couldn't believe it you know it was in 1982 so he made us all get dressed up in little uniforms and this is so curious Pia. I don't know how you got girls dressed in Sydney At ours, she went to Sydney one. I went to the Melbourne one but we had you know in our school we had um, tartan skirts yellow blouse and a maroon twin set well, you know, Lama Yeshi made us get dressed up like that. We had this the five girls had this little uniform. I was a nun, but he made us wear lay clothes. So I my friend, my friend Susanna in, in Milan, we began in Italy. So I she took me shopping for these lovely knee-length, nice maroon leather boots. I wore lipstick. I had hair then. I was still a nun, but I thought I'd better look like a lady, you know. I had a nice lipstick, and I had this nice little maroon jacket, this yellow blouse, and a nice little tartan skirt. I looked like a Sacre Cur girl, Pia. It was so funny. So we traveled around with Adelaide lama five men and five girls and the five boys were dressed up they're all swiss it's kind of ironic swiss guards and they wore gray slacks um navy jackets and maroon tie and a white shirt we looked all really proper but i'd also wore lipstick so every time i had hair so every time lami she saw me he would laugh because i was a nun he said oh i think i like you better like that he said it was very funny, you know. So when anyway, we travelled around with the Dalai Lama, it was amazing. So both in Spain, on the aeroplanes and his hotel, you know, these I remember that all the local um, governments would always send, you know, the local police as respectful. And so in Pisa, we got a big centre in Bruna in Pisa, and uh, near Pisa, fifty kilometres away. And so the the, the local co- cops in Pisa. We have a centre, a big centre there, and the Dalai Lama was there for about ten days, or a big about seven hundred people, and then they sent the local terrorist squad cops, these young twenty-seven-year-old Italian boys, you know, with their machine gun over their shoulders, and they were guarding the house, and there were these hippie looking Western guards, including a girl, can you imagine? I mean like I guy was forty or something, whatever. They were so cynical and they'd see the Dalai Lama, they were so cynical. But by the end of the ten days, he had them in the palm of their hand, in his hand, I tell you, they loved him, you know. And everywhere you went, he had meeting with the Pope. He had a meeting with, um, he went to a couple of monasteries. He loves going to these monasteries. So especially in in Spain, he went to one and it was the monasteries of the Carthusian monks who are these super strict monks who pray every three hours, sleep about one hour a day. They're in total silence. These amazing yogis, you know. So all I know is was, all I know is the boys, the five guard boys were allowed to go in. We five girls weren't allowed in. That's okay. That's their laws. I can't help it. So we hung out outside in these mountains, this monastery, and the Dalai Lama and Lama Yeshi went in with the other boys and a few students. And they came out, and these monks, these white, in lovely white robes, they were blissed out with this conversation with the Dalai Lama. They were just so blissed out, and the five guard boys said the questions they were asking were just so beautiful, and they just loved the Dalai Lama. There was so much good communication. Communication about the more esoteric things. And, they've, and there's so much it was just blissful to see them, you know. And I've seen this so many times. The Dalai Lama was invited back in 1992, I think, in London. He had a very close Catholic monk friend. And this priest, a priest in one of the local parishes in London, he invited the Dalai Lama to give a teaching on the Gospels. So these Catholics, I read about it in the local Catholic paper. And they said these Catholics who went to this teaching, a five-day teaching by the Dalai Lama about the Gospels, they were in tears hearing their own teachings from this Buddhist monk. They were blown out by it. So, you know, when you look at it from that point of view, there's so much similarity. And that's the Dalai Lama's expertise. He brings everybody together. He makes sure, you know, that there's, there's common ground. He does it with the scientists. He does it with all the, the, you know, the philosophy. He's amazing, and it was just so moving to see this. And this is why I'm saying there's so many things. Me, from being an old Catholic, Bruna. I mean, I went to Catholic convent until I was 15. I went to mass till I was 19. I was completely in love with God. I went to, I loved Our Lady and the saints. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a nun. Okay, I was the naughtiest girl in the school, but inside me, I loved God, and I loved going to my Catholic convent, even though the nuns were really strict. So so, I mean, for me, then I became a hippie, then I kind of became a radical lefty and a communist and a feminist. Then I came back to to something spiritual again when I was like 31. And it was just so much, there was so much familiarity for me, you know, in my way of interpreting it, so much familiarity. The philosophical views fundamentally different, like not God, but Buddha, but superior being pervades the universe, the teachings of compassion, so much similarity, you know, it's very interesting. I wanted to say that point. So the other point I wanted to say, which I've now forgotten. I can't remember. But maybe in relation to this, let me say something, the point I've just said, because many people feel they, they've got, a, I mean, there's a Dalai Lama bringing people together, but he's never, he's never being wishy-washy. He's not being like, he's not trying to make, create a new, what's that language they talk about that no one ever talks? Esperanto. He's not trying to create new, an Esperanto of religion. He's very clear there are similarities, but he's very clear there are differences, and you don't, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with having differences, you know? So, anyway, I'm sorry, I forgot to say, but my talk at the Catholic University for the 20 minutes was the similarity between the definition of God and Buddha. I'm not sure if the Catholics liked it but that was my talk in the end. So there are similarities, which is great, but in the end, Bruna, and you might find this or you might not, I've got no idea. And everyone, we all came from another view. You know, Every one of us Buddhists in the West, we weren't Buddhist born. We came to it from being Christians. We came to it from being Jewish. You know, We came to it from being secular. But one of the things is in the end, I'm seeing, I mean, I try to find ways to bring these things together too, to talk about, but I'm always so, for me, it's so important to make the differences, to be clear. Karma is a very specific philosophical view that's described in incredible detail in the text and has been even before the Buddha, these Indians before him. So it's not just, it's not trying to just be wishy-washy and make it all sound the same, because it's not the same, but it's good to see the similarities as well. But in the end, it helps us to find where we are coming from, to find our own way, to find our own path, not have a worry to try and make it all nice and same. That's kind of a bit naive, I think. That's just a thing. And that's Pia's experience as well. I'm just saying this to Pia too, you know, because Pia came from being a Buddhist to, to a Muslim and then she's back to her Buddhism, you know. So this is where once we're clear in ourselves, I mean for me i'm studying buddhism this last 45 years or whatever i'm super clear i'm a buddhist there's no doubt in my mind i'm a buddhist but the more i study it the more it's helped me put a find a doorway into understanding my catholic upbringing and that's what i find very helpful so it doesn't mean i'm a catholic i mean in a way i am a a catholic hippie communist feminist buddhist i am that i can't throw any part of myself out but it's all become subsumed you know, for me in the label Buddhist, but there's no contradiction. Of course I'm a feminist. And if you like, of course I'm a communist. Of course I am in some sense. Of course I'm a hippie. Of course I'm a Catholic. But the label that defines me and I'm comfortable with that is Buddhist, you know. I'm just talking away some things. Maybe some questions now from all what I've just chatted about. Any thoughts, people?
3: Um, We have a couple of questions here about uh, praying for people in the Bardo. Good. So Rosemary is asking, when we're saying prayers for people who are in the Bardo, what should we say? And how exactly does that help their mind in the Bardo experience?
1: Well, I don't think, Rosemary, the broader question is how does prayer help anybody? Bardo or not Bardo, what's the difference? Whether you're in living in San, if you're living in San Francisco and you're praying from Melbourne, or whether the person's in a bardo and you're praying from Melbourne, there's no difference. The question is your broader question. I would suggest Rosemary is how does prayer help? Would you agree with that broader point, Rosemary? Or or you or, or, or yeah, I, no, I see what you mean. Yeah. So let me answer it then. Okay. This really takes us time because we get very. I'm not saying is confused. I'm not saying that. We have a certain concept of what prayer is, especially if, we, if we've been brought up as a Christian, you know, or a Muslim for that matter. So I think it's important to, I thought I was going to talk about karma. That's right. I was going to talk about karma. We need to. Euthanasia. That's right. Knocking off your pets and everything or knocking off your grandma, one or the other. So I'm going to go to that one. But I think in a way, this also answers the question, is part of the question. When we understand this Buddhist view which most of us as Buddhists don't go into that deeply. We tend just to say, oh, I believe in karma. We haven't really studied it properly. And the more we study it properly, the more we'll understand it's just this natural process that occurs every millisecond in our mind. Basically, the Buddhist view is that every millisecond of what we think and feel and then do and say on the basis of what we think and feel, that's the process of quote, unquote, creating karma. Karma just means actions, but it starts with mental action and that's intention intention is volition and that really and there's all these different parts of the mind the buddhists they go quite deeply into it the different many parts of the mind all working together to have our moment by moment experiences and it's highly technical how it actually works it's like learning botany you got to learn the techniques of exactly what goes on you can know botany in general you can have faith in botany because you can see it works but to really be a good botanist you have to study the details of botany it's exactly the same here So to really be in control of the process of what your mind and body and speech do, and then being clear about the seeds you plant in your mind so that you can ensure that you'll get a decent future because you're creating yourself. Basically, you need to learn the details. It's pretty simple. So in general, that's a really crucial point. So then, um, okay. So now, so where does, I'm going to go to that more later still. So where does prayer fit? So prayer actually, Often the meaning of prayer in Buddhism is aspiration. I mean, you know, every Saturday we do this, you know, as some of you might know, we do this particular prayer written by this one Lama a few centuries ago when there was a, some big pandemic in a monastery. And just by doing these various verses and doing different compassion mantra, he was able to heal the monastery. So the Lama Zopa's got us all, as you must know, us monks and nuns around the world have been doing it for many months now. And, we, and we're going to continue to do it, he said, until COVID-19 finishes. Hope the, hope the world catches up with Australia soon. And then, so we, 24 hours, every 30 minutes, some of us do longer. We do a session and it's on YouTube and we do 24 hours, around the entire 24 hours, every Saturday, we do this particular prayer. So if you look at those verses, every verse, may beings suffer, not suffer from this, may all beings be happy, may this, may that. It's may, it's an aspiration, may. Another prayer is, you know, please. So now we think, well, if Buddha's not a creator, I wonder why we pray. What are you asking him to do? because the usual concept we have of a prayer is God, who is the boss, who is the creator, and I'm not complaining. And you ask God to do something. Now that's why a lot of the the non-Catholics don't like the saints. They think we're giving too, the Catholics gave too much power to the saints, you know, because they don't have much power, but we all know the Catholics love all their saints. That's very similar to the Tibetan Buddhist one, all these different bodhisattvas, right? So the point is, what is the benefit of prayer? Okay, let me now use the point. This is the point now. I'm always saying this is the point, but it is the point. Hang on, I've got to blow my nose again. Okay, so so there's rosemary who's decided she wants to become a buddha and what drives her to become a buddha is her incredible compassion for sentient beings so the analogy would be rosemary's decided to become a doctor and what drives rosemary to become a doctor is because she's got incredible compassion for suffering sentient beings that's a good analogy rosemary okay so now what you're doing every second when you're working on those bodies and you're cutting up and learning about anatomy and you're learning about these diseases and you're, and all the time, every day you wake up, you're motivated by the thought, i am going to learn all these things so I can become a Buddha or become a doctor. So now become, let's say you become the best doctor on the whole planet. So now you why did you become a doctor? Cause you want to help others, but now what are you going to do? Um, uh, Rosemary, sit, put a little sign up on your door and say, I'm a doctor, you know, and put up and, and dispense a few band-aids. People have got to come and you can't just, no, on the other hand, you can't just go barging out. Hey, I'm a doctor. I can heal you. And you sort of shove it down their throats. No, that's not, that's very rude. What you do is people have to know about you and then people have to come and knock on your door. And I will say, please, Rosemary, I've heard you're a good doctor. Will you please heal my disease? And then what you will do is you won't heal my disease, but you will give me medicine and I will have faith in you because I've checked up on your reputation. I will say please Rosemary give me medicine. That's a prayer Rosemary. That's a prayer. So the buddhas are these infinitely powerful beings who pervade the universe whose only job is to help. So by asking them they're going to I mean they're going to come running whether you're in the bardo or next door. Their job is to know your mind and their job. So by asking one, I create the virtue of asking the Buddha to help me. And that helps me get closer to Buddhism to becoming a Buddha, but also that's, it's interdependent. A Buddha has got, you've got all the qualities able to heal anybody on the planet. But then what if nobody comes and asks you? Your hands are tied. You can't go outside and start bullying them. You need people to ask you. It's dependent arising. So the asking and requesting to the Buddhas to help is a major function of of our prayer, a major one. And it's reasonable. But you do the work. And and, and asking for helping others. Why not? Does that make sense so far, uh, Rosemary?
4: Absolutely. Yeah, I've never heard it explained so clearly before, even by you. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> but I'll tell you a lovely story. This is really the active example of how these holy beings manifest. And there's all these stories of like this in Christianity as well. My friend Harry, who's a meditator, he's four hours north of here is a place called, what's it called? Sharky? What's it called? In Colorado. It's, they say it's like Tibet. Crystal thank you Crestone okay it's about four hours from here we went one time and, and our friends Harry and Mary they've both been meditators all their lives they've had caves up in the pool and now they've got a little house in Crestone and Mary's starting her three-year retreat very soon Harry spent his life in retreat he's an amazing being so anyway he was in Copan at our monastery around the 90s and he was getting ready before phone it was before mobile phones anyway and he was getting ready packing his bag and getting ready to walk up the mountains again about 10 days up into the or where the Sherpas live and where he had a cave where Lama Zopa's from from his past life our teacher Lama Zopa he's from there so Harry was getting ready to go to do his off to his retreat again he does you know sometimes three years four year retreats in his little cave he's a very amazing meditator so anyway he was getting ready and then he left but then lama zopa said he had a dream lama zopa is our teacher some of you know and he's there and he said he had a dream that harry would die because these these walks up those mountains are very treacherous you know we we, we've led a couple of treks up there and i mean you can easily fall off i nearly fell off knocked over by a yak you know someone saved me luckily but you can easily fall off and all these porters they're really intense how they carry all these 60 kilo packs on their back, you know, with their heads, with their head, with their bent head bent double. All they can do is see their feet for 10 days with these big packs. So anyway, Harry's got ready with his 20 kilo pack and he's got another friend with him from behind and they're walking up the hill. They're walking up. No, sorry. Lama Zopa, I jumped ahead. Lama Zopa said he wished Lama Zopa said, get a message to Harry. He had a dream that he'd die. Well, anyway, first of all, Lama doesn't sleep. He's a meditator day and night. He's a holy being. So he can't have had a dream. He's just being polite. He was clairvoyant. Clairvoyance in Buddhism, as we must know, is nothing. It's like we all need it eventually. And when we've got this incredible meditation technique under our belt called single point of concentration, like I mentioned to Pia, that's when your mind is more, you get to a more subtle level of your mind and you're really much more advanced and you can see the past, you can see the future. You're super, it's super powerful now. This has been around for three, four, 5,000 years technique you know we're only learning about it now in the west so anyway lama zopa doesn't sleep he's a holy being so he must have had a, he must have been clairvoyant so anyway harry had already left and obviously it was before mobiles so then lama zopa asked geshi lama kontra this amazing yogi who spent years up in the mountains naked no food no sleep in living in these caves becoming a buddha he lived in vajrayogini's pure lad this amazing female buddha um, he lived in Vajrayogini's pure land, Lama Zopa said. He's this wonderful old monk. He's, he's passed away now. Anyway, he was living at Kolpain at that time. Very humble, unassuming. A great yogi, but very humble. Nobody could tell. So Lama Zopa asked Harry to pray for, asked Geshe Lama Konchog to pray for Harry. So this is the story. I heard this later. The nun who was with him must have told the story. So I asked Harry to verify the story. So this is roughly what happened. The, the normal track was, was you know, there'd been an avalanche. So they had to take a very dangerous track. It's like a, you know, like, you know, a huge, like three, you know, 300, 500 meter drop and a really narrow treacherous path. And there are these Sherpa porters coming. Suddenly he's at a certain point, very narrow, walking up and these four Sherpas walking down and they've got their big packs on their back and it's super treacherous. I mean, you know, even if it's wide, there's two people on it, you can still fall over. To so these guys with their packs and the four of them walking down, very intense, very close. And the first thought that arose in Harry's mind was, okay, four of them, one of me, I'll step to the side. So he spent years in meditation and many of these meditations they do on compassion is to try and make this incredible kind of shift in the mind where they really learn. It's like the Christians call saints. In Tibetan, in Sanskrit, they call a bodhisattva, an amazing person who's made this incredible shift from years and years of hard practice when they're truly full of compassion for other beings. Not as occasionally, but they've truly realized this level of compassion. So Harry, there's this happy fellow. Anybody who ever knows Harry always says, oh, Harry's a bodhisattva. Harry's a bodhisattva like saying Harry's a saint, he's just this nice fellow. He's like, it reminds you of Father Christmas. So I'd always think, well, yeah, who knows? But then I heard this story, I figured I bet you Harry sounds like a saint. He sounds like a body suffer to me. Because what happened was, the moment he saw these four Sherpas and he spent years in meditation on compassion, and now he puts his money where his mouth is. So these four Sherpas walking down and he sees it's so narrow, it's so intense, I'll step to the side. So he stepped close to the edge of the cliff. Then the next thought he had, he said, if they knock me, I won't hold on. This is not, he's not being a drama queen. He's just quietly in his own mind. Now think about this. If you hadn't done years and years of meditation, years and years of serious spiritual practice, you wouldn't just naturally do that. You'd have a panic attack and you'd lean against the cliff and hope they don't all fall off, you know? So then they knocked him by accident. Of course, the whole thing happened so quickly. And then he said this, he said, my feet were on the ground. I was falling. My pack was pulling me. And he said, I had a psychic vision of the entire fall and I saw my body crash to the ground. Then he said, he felt the hands of Geshe Lama Kanshal, this amazing yogi, forcefully pushing him and he reversed direction and he fell into the path. And so this nun was with him, she reported. So now that's the power of the holy beings. That's the power of holy beings, you know. The Buddha is talking about how we've all got this incredible capability to develop ourselves to the fullness of infinite wisdom, infinite compassion, infinite everything, life after life after life. And then when you become this Buddha, you only want to benefit others. It's very fascinating. So that story I find very powerful. So pr- you would say that Harry didn't pray. Harry's own incredible body teacher is incredible compassion. Now, these this is the point now, Patricia, though, uh, Rosemary. Gisama Kontrog is like the doctor, but he, he just had to be asked once by Lama Zopa and he went running, baby. You get my point? They don't need to be asked all the time because they're very clever, but the asking is part of the, the interdependent dynamic of it and it, we all benefit from the asking. We all connect. We're all connected, you know. Do you understand, darling? That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you, sweetheart. What else, people?
3: Um, There was a a similar question, I think, from Rosie um, who's asking about mantras and Rosie says, I'm curious about the idea of our deities that embody what we want to aspire to as opposed to a God that people may supplicate to or worship. So why if... As a Buddhist, we don't believe in a power outside ourselves, do we? Ask the deities in a mantra like Vajrasattva to please guide us or please stabilize our happiness.
1: I think everything in your question is perfect. When I think I've answered it, but the only misconception I would say that suggested by your words is that uh, there's no be- there's no power outside us. Of course, there's a power outside us. It's called Buddha. Of course, there's a power outside us. A person, in other words. You know, it's like saying, just because you become a musician, you become Buddha. That's like saying your music teacher is no power outside you. There's a music teacher outside you, darling. And how do you become a music teacher? How do you become a musician yourself by asking your music teacher? How do I I become a Buddha? By having Buddhas outside there. There are billions of beings who become Buddha. Their job is to go around the universe benefiting people. They never stop, but they're not creators. That's the Mm -hmm. misconception. You. So you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater by assuming if there's no creator, there's no one, there's no outside power. Of course, there's an outside power. It's a, I mean, if you're in grade five music and you're a grade 10 teacher, that's an outside power, baby, but you're going to get to grade 10 as well. And then you become the outside power for someone else. But you've got to do the work. Mm-hmm. The only reason you have a teacher is so that you can become that yourself. The function of a Buddha is definitely outside of millions of people that become Buddhas. So does that help, Trish? I'm not sure. What do you think? Was it Trish who asked her? Rosie, Rosie. Oh uh, yes,
0: yeah. Um, I just wondered, um, yeah, why why we and it's a bit like praying, I guess. So you're you're sending those thoughts and um, desires for ourselves and for others out to to the universe, to those Buddhas that are that are there. And yeah, it just confounded me a little bit that that they actually. That energy is actually heard,
1: or I don't know what the right words are, heard or, or right. taken. So based out. on what I said the earlier story, did that help you understand some of those points, or are you are still confused by it, Rosie?
0: Uh, yes, I need to integrate that now. It was a fantastic story, and uh, yeah. I really,
1: um, yeah, listened. Okay, but another thing, Rosie, I know when I first started wanting a spiritual path again after I'd been an old radical lefty, that was back in the 70s, and I heard about Transcendental Meditation. So I did TM, right? And I remember that even for a while, I remember reading, and they even say that now, if you can, if more than what is it, 1% or 10% or 3% or something of people all in the same place, all doing particular prayers and mantras, that shifts the energy in that place. So Rosie, I think this is something we can all see. I mean, keep it real simple. If you're in a group of 10, you, you're in a group of 10 people and those 10 people are feeling friendly and loving and kind, don't you say, isn't there a lovely feeling in the room? Wouldn't you say that? Absolutely, yes. Now, look, look what happens when they start fighting, Rosie. Yes. But it's fairly obvious you've got a group of people all angry in a certain neighbourhood, it's gonna, you're going to have a bad vibes everywhere. It's going to impact upon everybody. And this is the meaning of interdependence. Everything is dependent on something else. Nothing exists in isolation. So yeah. prayer, having a thought... Even just a thought, may all beings be happy. Now, that doesn't magically mean they will, will be happy. But first of all, it, pur- it purifies your mind. It makes you strong. It makes you develop compassion. And then that can impact on another person you meet. So it kind of it has impact around us. And, and so if everybody's doing that. It's got to have a profound effect on the world. And then you can get all the beings who are the Buddhas. You've actually become Buddha, who are real people who've become Buddha. Then you're connecting with them and aspiring to be like them and requesting them to use their power to benefit but others it's like asking the doctor to heal if you these these buddhas you give them an inch they'll take a thousand miles they will do everything <laughs> they can are you getting my point rosie it's yes not the, yes i do not there's no outside power don't conflate outside power with creator there's no creator <laughs> but there's plenty of outside power baby they're called yeah. buddhas and yeah. bodhisattvas and holy beings do you understand darling yes i do i do and thank you for that that's cleared Good. that up for me beautifully I'm very happy. thank you thank Rosa. you it's a very common point both your point and rosemary's it's very interesting and i think that's the point as soon as we hear the because we we assume that prayer is only to a creator that's the that's quite a puzzle for us i think why right? and then we assume that the function of prayer and the function of creator are fairly set in stone. So as soon as you hear Buddha's not a creator, we then think he's a, you know, he's a communist. You don't why would you do prayer then? Because we assume so it's a it's a misconception about what prayer is, and it's a misconception, even as Rosie put it, of an external power. The world is full of external beings, good and bad power, you know. But yeah, it's a good point. What else?
3: Um, just one final one on the, the Harry story and prayer. So Catherine's asking. So if Lama Zopa intervened on Harry's behalf, does that then mean that Harry must have prayed for Lama Zopa to take care of him and keep him from danger?
1: I would say there's no question. It's much more intricate and more nuanced than that. But essentially, yes, because but the key point, I would say it's like this. First of all, Lama Zopa has the power himself to do this. But somehow they're all, kind of, they're all kind of playing their role. They're all like playing in a movie and they're all playing out their own role. And I mean, Lama Zopa Rinpoche is powerful, if not more powerful than Geshe-Lama Kontrog. But somehow it just different karmic connections with different things. It's just kind of curious, you know? So, and even the fact that Lama Zopa asked Geshe-Lama Kontrog, it showed it was something externalized. If Harry had just said, oh, Lama Zopa, you know, if Lama Zopa, let's say, said nothing, and I'm thinking out loud now, if Lama Zopa with his clairvoyance can see that Harry would die. So he could easily have done exactly that job himself, but he put it out there and he said, please ask Geshe-Lama Kontrog to pray. And then who turns up for Harry is Geshe-Lama Kontrog. Now, if Lama Zopa turned up, you wouldn't believe Harry, but this is almost like helping you believe it's true because we know that Lama Zopa asked Eshi Lama Kontrog, so there you go, so he popped up, you know? So in a way, it's they're all working together to help sentient beings in a way. There's one way I want to say it. But the other one is Harry, the main cause for Harry to be helped is his own incredible practice, his own incredible compassion without a second thought to want to give his happily give his life for somebody else, you know? That was one of the powerful catalysts that caused Gesellam Konchok to be there. That's, this is one that's a bit hard to understand because we tend to think, well, surely Gesellam Konchok would help anybody. It's not if you have to deserve it first. It's more that you've got to create the cause to be helped. Anyway, I don't know if I'm explaining things clearly here. But they're all all working together. Harry's a major part of it. He's got a strong communication with Lama Zopa, no question. He's also got a strong communication with Geshe-Lama Kontra, no question. Both of them have the power. I mean, even the lowest level Bodhisattva, and there are 10 stages, from the time you have realized emptiness, and then you start on your path, the next stages of your path to Buddhahood, you go through these 10 different stages, can take many lifetimes. But even the first level of these great Bodhisattvas, these great saints, they can already, they're already capable of manifesting their mind in 100 different bodies simultaneously. So this is only really able to be understood if we study in more detail the Vajrayana teachings, the more esoteric teachings, because they describe the way things exist and all the subtle energies, and it's quite fascinating. But even the lowest level bodhisattva has the ability to manifest their mind in at least 100 forms simultaneously to benefit sentient beings, you know. And they increase that power as they get all the way to Buddhahood. So it's, all, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big interdependent scenario we're involved in basically, you know. Anyway, I hope that helps, I'm not sure. Well, I'm always short changing you and I think I have to stop again. I think we've got enough now. Two hours are so long, especially when I talk three times the pace of most people. I've always told you that, haven't I? That Miffy proved it one year. She invited three of us nuns. I always quote this story, it's so stupid. In Brisbane, 30 years ago, she invited three of us nuns from Chen Raising Institute to come down to Brisbane to give us 90 minute talk on three Tuesdays. Then they then they transcribed our teachings and the other two nuns took eight pages and mine were 24. So it's probably about, for me, it's about nine o'clock at night already. So you've had three and a half hours already, you people. So I can-
2: Venerable, to- I can verify that as well because when I put the videos up on YouTube, I put little chapters points in there and it's amazing how many words can come out in three seconds. (laughs) That's what I discovered last night.
3: He's keeping notes of all the topics as we go and I'm looking and thinking, how do we cover all of that in four minutes?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So maybe, I mean, anyway, I know it's very funny. This is very funny, it's true, it's really true. We're very
2: fortunate because that means we pack it in.
1: Yeah. I know. But I keep thinking if, I, if I'm getting older, I'd slow down, but I haven't yet. So, you know, Maybe I'm going to give up on slowing down. <laughs> anyway, never mind you people. So we'll, we'll cut a bit early. 20